Playback Daily, a roundup of some of the day's radio. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. I think the whole area, to the whole nation, is absolutely devastated. Personally, I can't even focus on my daily chores. Does it help to come together tonight? It does. Very much so. It's all about unity mm-hmm. and sharing that grief together. It does help. All we can do is pray for them. The last thing I did last night, going to sleep, was say the rosary for them. And that's all we can do at this time. Really, that's all you can do. I'm from the town here and I just came down to support everybody. How are you all feeling? Shocked. Bar one, we know all of them. It's a tough time, very tough time, yeah. Just coming together tonight, does it help? Absolutely, because the shop was the heart of the village and it's gone now. So this is the place where everybody meets. And after a difficult weekend watching the unfolding story of the terrible tragedy at Creasla, we'll start in the morning where Ryan Tuberty was trying to articulate the devastation we were all feeling. As we've been hearing from you all weekend um, since what happened on Friday uh, took place, it was unfolding. Uh, on Friday afternoon, um, and then we became aware of, of, this, uh, of the details uh, as we were working away over on TV on Friday evening. Um, and then obviously by the time we got to about 11 o'clock, we realised that this was truly a catastrophe in Donegal. Um, at that point, three people had been reported as being fatalities, dying. Um, so quickly we, we uh, asked our guest, our last guest of the evening, Luke O'Neill, if you wouldn't mind awfully, um, we had to change the the dynamic of the programme and the nature of it and uh, Eileen Magner joined us and told us about what was happening and then I woke up on Saturday morning to the news that uh, 10 people uh, had died as we all woke up to and uh, truly changing the uh, nature of our weekend and maybe the the sense of the mood of the island. It's been a tough few years, hasn't it, for everybody? Um, let's face it. Spoke speaking to people over the weekend in different contexts and just the sense that, you know, we're, 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 we have a lot of troubles um, and we've seen a lot of, of difficulties. And um, even before what happened at Donegal, I think people are a bit discombobulated anyway. I think people's nerves are a little frayed and uh, this is the time we need to be very strong. That's the truth of it. And then... You know, sometimes you take uh, a look at what happened at the weekend. I'm looking at 10 faces uh, at the front of all the papers this morning that I shouldn't be looking at today. You know, these are 10 people that should be going to school and should be going to work and should be having breakfast and should be picking up their coffee and doing what are considered to be mundane things. But increasingly, as we were talking about over the weekend with other friends, the mundane feels much more beautiful um, and more understandable. And... The the three words that le- leapt out at me over the last twenty four hours, forty eight hours are are the following. One is shell shock. I think that's what how it feels. It feels like a, it was like a bomb went off, and of course it wasn't a bomb. It was an explosion of a different hue, but it was shell shocking for people. People are still shell shocked. You can hear it on the on the on the radio and see it on TV. Of course they are. It's just happened. Um, shell shocked by the number of victims and the ages of them. Uh, shell shocked by the randomness of it all. A woman got in touch with me on Instagram last night to say that her husband was the last man out of the station and got home. Uh, he closed the door and, and uh, the explosion happened. Random. He's there today for breakfast. Just, uh, it's, it's unfathomable. And people are shell-shocked by how, how utterly changed their lives are now and for families. The second word that jumped out at me was unimaginable because that's exactly what the word is I would use 
you think of the, the the little girl went in to buy an ice cream, another little girl went in to buy a cake for her mother. Um, it's it's unimaginable. The magnitude of the grief that the, these families are going through is unimaginable. The bleakness of the future for these families is unimaginable now. They'll have to get on with life. Of course they will, but it just doesn't feel like it's it's possible to fathom any of it. The number of funerals that are going to have to take place in Donegal this weekend, uh, this week I should say, is also unimaginable. And it's it's all those empty chairs at the kitchen table and couches at uh, watching the TV tonight and to desks where friends and colleagues would, would, would normally expect to see one of these people arriving today. The last word of the three that jumped out at me is hope. And I'm, I'm, I think that's the, probably the most important word today because that's what we have to cling to, um, really. Um, and you get hope when you see the kindness of the community, don't you? You get, you get hope when you see people handing out copies and sandwiches and saying, no charge, just please keep going. You get hope when you read about the stories, as I was reading today, of people working all through the night with diggers and with their bare hands just to try and find some hope in, with, in, amongst the rubble. And, and you get hope from the strength of people's faith and you get hope of the desire to of people and the friends, family, neighbours and all, uh, fellow citizens who want to be of use, of any use at all. So if what we witnessed this weekend was has been nightmarish for all of us on the island, and it has been, it's probably worth remembering what was once said about hope, that it, it, uh, it hope is a waking dream. And there is a sense, isn't there, that, that with, uh, with hope that we can... that we can send essentially condolences to the grieving families and then lots of love, all the love, to the community of Chrysla, um today. And that's all they need to know and that's all you need to know uh, if, you're, if you're in that part of the country today is that um, I think it's fair to say that we're all, as, as Irish people, standing, standing with you in every way imaginable and this morning. That's what I'll say. I know that people want to get involved this morning and, and talk to us and uh, send us messages and we'll read them out. Of course we will. Um, but like I say, we're, we're, we're standing with our friends in Law today in every way possible. Ryan Tuberty in the morning. Then later, Claire Byrne was talking to reporter John Cook, who was in Creasla and talking to a heartbroken community. And first, we go to Creasla in northwest Donegal this morning. A community ripped apart by that devastating explosion at a service station and supermarket on Friday afternoon. Gardaí say technical examinations are expected to continue today into what caused the blast at Lafferty's Apple Green, in which 10 people died and many others were injured. Funeral preparations are being made for the four men, three women, two teenagers and a five-year-old girl who lost their lives in the tragedy as locals struggle to deal with what happened. Our reporter John Cook is live in Creasla for us now. Good morning, John. Will you firstly describe the scene for us there this morning? I will, Claire, and the rain is falling here again over northwest Donegal this morning. A really beautiful part of Ireland. Uh, and so, even though the sun has shone through a few times over Sheephaven Bay today, the rain is somehow more reflective of the mood I've encountered yesterday and today here in a devastated part of Donegal. I'm looking at the shell of what used to be Lafferty's shop as I speak to you. It's a post office as well, the Apple Green Petrol Station. Some locals call it by the old name of Vivo. There was also a beauty salon here and upstairs apartments in the complex 
complex, uh, which was a rest stop off point for tourists travelling from Letterkenny to Dunfanaghy through the beautiful hills of Donegal. But for locals in Creesla, it was the heart of their village, they told me, where they met and did their business. The heart that was cruelly ripped out on what should have been a normal Friday afternoon as parents stopped off bringing kids home from school. People did their banking at the post office or the ATM machine. Motorists refueled their cars. Children and teenagers chose ice cream, sweets and birthday cake while young couples or friends met outside or talked upstairs in their apartments. All that changed shortly after 3.10 on Friday afternoon with a blast that almost collapsed the entire building, blew windows out of houses up to 100 yards away, the shattered glass on the road beside me as I speak to you, Claire, and net curtains blowing in the wind today, symbolic of the homes left feeling utterly empty and the lives torn apart by what locals are still struggling to process today. Brian Dolan's agri-consultancy office is just down the road from here. His wife Margaret Ann went out to get coffee and to lodge money in the post office at Lafferty's on Friday afternoon, shortly after three o'clock, and she'd walked away just minutes before the blast. Thankfully, Brian told me, she got out unharmed. Yeah, she was, she was in the building um, minutes, minutes beforehand. Um, yeah, I suppose. A lucky escape. Yes, we're we're here to tell the story. Our friends, our neighbours, some of them are not here. She called you, and you rushed to the scene quickly. Can you describe what that scene looked like as you and others tried to enter in a panic to help those you could see that you knew? The initial, the initial look when you came round the corner and you saw the building, you just automatically got the feeling this is, this is serious. I don't think anybody thought after that. You just the only thought process was what what could you do? Did you get in yourself to help? Yes. Was it possible? Was it safe? Or did people even have time to think of that? There was people shouting at us to come out, but no. You knew there were people in there in the rubble trapped. Yes. Brian, did you see people saved? And, and sadly, did you see people who could not be saved? I'll just say that I saw people saved. Is that, I don't know if that's any comfort because I know you've lost a lot of friends. They're friends of mine, they're clients of mine. They're They'll be very sadly missed. As you said, Chrysler, a place no one knew of before. How would you describe this community? Absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a lovely place. Bar mm-hmm. Friday afternoon. We're a small, very small community. I say I'm in business. People ask you where you're from. You're from Chrysler. Where's that? You know, it's half an hour west of Letterkenny. Nobody knows Creasler, maybe the cutting the corn in Creasler or Bridie Gallagher or maybe the viaduct accident we had out the road 97 years ago, I think it was, before Friday. I think most people in Ireland would never have known where Creasler was. We will get through it, but, I mean, Creasler will never, ever, ever be the same for anybody here. Brian Dolan speaking to reporter John Cook in Creasla. Then Clara spoke to Garda, Brendan O'Connor. I'm joined by Brendan O'Connor, President of the Garda Representative Association and also Representative of Garda in Donegal. Brendan, thank you very much for speaking to us. I know it's been a very difficult weekend for your members and for yourself. You've been at the scene all over the weekend. There's been a non-stop Garda presence there since Friday afternoon, of course, Tell me how your members are today. How are they doing? Well, I think, um, Claire, first of all, good morning. I think um, <clears throat> John, the 
painted a very accurate picture and portrayed exactly the, the emotions and the feelings in the community. And I think that's just reflected across on Garrett's and the members who um, are coming to terms with what they were exposed to and what they dealt with over the weekend. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, this morning are thinking about how it's been for first responders like like yourself and, and your colleagues in the Gardaí. And you knew the people involved who were the victims of this tragedy. <clears throat> yes, well, the, <clears throat> the Gardaí are very much part of the community here in Donegal. And for years, we used to actually f- get fuel for the patrol car in Chrysler in vivo, so we would know all the staff there. And a lot of the guards who responded would, as long as <clears throat> as well as working in the community, a lot of members were mobilised that were off duty that went to the scene straight away. So it's a very personal and um, a very real experience. It would yeah. be traumatic in any large urban environment where, where there was anonymous connections, but where the people are known, it just makes it that little bit more uh, difficult to deal with. And Brandon, you're all professional people, but training can prepare you for something <clears throat> like this. No, I think no level of training, but I think... Uh, the guards, like the community, just went to, into auto response. And I think, you know, people are focusing on the emergency services and the work that was done, and it was fantastic. But we couldn't have done anything without the, the mobilisation of the community. And that's what carried the emergency services and made us able to do our job. And, you know, you spoke to Brian Dolan there, Margaret Ann, the lady that was referred to was in the shop. I mean, Margaret Ann was there at five o'clock in the morning with trays of tea, giving them out to all the, the emergency staff. So, Everybody in the community played their part and, and there's nobody that did more than anyone else. It was a collective effort and that's really, I suppose, what's given people solace. There's a sense and a bond that, you know, we went through this together, whatever your role. And there's a lot of people behind the scenes that done amazing work who will never be mentioned, that people don't even think of. And, you know, <clears throat> the reality is the people who are now maybe part of the, of, of the follow-up, you know, and there's staff there in, in the mortuary in Kenny who are also part of the community. No one even thinks of and what the efforts that they went through and what they mobilised. And, you know, it's not right maybe to focus on those things, but those people have to be remembered and acknowledged. Yeah, you know, just hearing you say that, it, it brings it home just how widespread the impact of something like this is going to be. You know, when you mention those people that we might never otherwise think of being affected by this. Yes, and that's it. And, and they, it's it, it's a very it's very visual and it's very vivid. The people who are at the forefront wearing yellow coats and, and driving emergency vehicles. But the real heroes here were the people, the young men, the, the construction workers who rallied the farm workers. I mean, one thing about a, a, a rural community is it's amazing the access to machinery, to, to equipment, to tools, and that's what was mobilised in the first initial few hours. And that's what actually made the scene was very dangerous. But so many people went in there when it was dangerous and risked their lives and made it a, a safe environment for the professionals to get in there. And that sh- shouldn't be lost. It really was a community response and a state response. But as I say, I cannot overstate the importance of the role every single individual played. And that goes down to young teenage girls that maybe have even left school over there all night in the coffee shops making coffee, keeping the emergency services sustained. There's nobody in the community that hasn't played a part and there's nobody in the community that isn't suffering and, and dealing with the, with, with the fallout from this and Brendan, I know our, our listeners will have heard descriptions of people in there in flip-flops and shorts trying to move rubble. Civilians, let's call them that, with uh, diggers trying to remove blocks from, from the scene as well and continuing right throughout the night on Friday night. Did you witness all of that? Did you see all that happening? 
Well, look, I was there, and I, I just don't want to focus on that. There was hundreds of, of emergency service personnel, and we all played an equal part. But yes, I mean, I did, I did see the effort, and that's why I feel I can speak on behalf of the guards that I stood with and, and watched work, and all our extra colleagues and the colleagues that came from Northern Ireland with rescue dogs that did played a huge part in it. The guards who were, you know, retrieved CCTV and established the fact early on as exactly how many casualties we, we thought we were looking for and wh- wh- where we might locate them. So, you know, there was you know, detective branch, there was guards that came from all over the county, there was the local guards that were off duty that scrambled, there was the senior officers that, that arrived on scene, you know, the, the supervisors, and I mean, they, they're, they're just as, as effective as anyone else. And I was looking to us and looking to them for leadership, and we're going through the same emotions as every other person that's there. So, but you just go into autopilot and you just have to do it. But, but I, I have to say, the community carried us. We couldn't yeah. have done it without what was in the background. And the fate of this, the chance, the coincidence, like that's been on everyone's minds all weekend. Have you felt that as well, Brendan? Yes. It, it, as I say, it's total randomness. I mean, two of my colleagues actually had an appointment to go to one of those apartments to take a statement in the afternoon and only because they were diverted to another call, they weren't there. So it was, and, and that's the randomness of it. There's so many people. You know, I spoke to a neighbour who, who I was speaking that day and his plan was to go up and get diesel at a certain time. And everyone is just, the randomness of it. People who were, happen to be, if you got out of your car to pay for your diesel and the person who was still in their car, you know, that could be the difference between life and death. And that's, that's what people are finding very shocking and the immediacy of it. Yeah, and you, you were there yourself, weren't you, just before it happened or shortly before it happened? Um, well, I had been in the shop earlier all right myself. Yeah. Garda representative Brendan O'Connor, then later Donegal native Daniel O'Donnell. Daniel O'Donnell, good morning to you. Good morning, Claire. An exceptionally difficult time for the community in Creasle, as we've been her- hearing, but also the people of Donegal and, and of Ireland. It's just unbelievable. I, I just, when I first heard it, I was travelling. I was actually in Chicago airport. And, you know, the initial thing you don't even imagine it's going to be so serious and very quickly you know i was fine getting news from home that this was a terrible tragedy and then you know i arrived in dublin i knew before i left that they had said there was three people who had died and just waiting on the plane you know donegal is everybody knows somebody that knows somebody in Donegal. And I suppose Ireland is like that. And I was standing beside a girl who was travelling back and she said her husband's first cousin had been the first to be identified as, as, you know, having died. And just, you know, there's no words really mm-hmm. to to express anything of how people must be feeling you know, increasingly, I can imagine such a small community. Everybody knows everybody. A lot of people are related. And it just, it's beyond comprehension that the like of this would happen. Yeah. And and Donegal is is a big county. Uh, Creasley is a small community. But Donegal is, is just a tight place, isn't it? This is going to be felt right across that county. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was... You know, I was in the shop in, in August and I was just thinking, you know, I walked and paid, went in to pay for diesel, walked in and I was thinking, that's what some people did on Friday. They just walked in to do whatever they needed to do, never thinking, you know, what was ahead of them. And just in a split second, 
you know, how life can change, not alone for those that are, are deceased and injured, but all of the people. I mean, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people that their lives are never, ever going to be the same again. It's just, it doesn't bear thinking about mm-hmm. what what is just, I, 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 there's, I can't, there's nothing, I don't know how to express what I would like to say. It's, it's hard to find the words. I know last night you went to a service in Dublin, didn't you? I did. I, I got an, an email from a friend of mine who said that they were having a service, just saying how terrible it was. Not she didn't know where I was. And she said, we're having a service, you know, in Balali Church at six o'clock. And it was near enough that time when I got the email and I just pulled on me and went down. And it was a beautiful service with very little words. And I think that's that reflects what everybody is feeling, because there is nothing that anybody can say. The, the priest and, and the, the sister who who um, conducted the service, it was beautiful. And there was a, a lady who played the violin. And just we sat in meditation for most of the, the service, just thinking and in silent prayer for all of those, you know, affected. And there was 10 candles lit on the altar for those who have lost their lives. But anyway, it's just, you know, I was, and then I saw a picture of of Chrysler and the sign that said, you know, Chrysler, the home of Brady Gallagher. And my mind went back to the day when we all gathered at that sign where we honoured Brady Gallagher, who was the most famous person ever to come out of Chrysler. And I thought about the joy that was in Chrysler that day. And I thought about the sadness that's in Chrysler today. And I just, it's it's just beyond anything. And everyone, you know, right across the country now is wondering, what can we do to help? How can we support this community? And I'm sure yourself, you'll, you'll be asked to get involved down the line in, in, in some way. Um, we all just want to find a way to get them through the next days, weeks and months because it is going to be really, really difficult. Well, I suppose all we can do as people who believe that there's more to life than what we have here, all we can do is pray for them. The last thing I did last night, going to sleep, was say the rosary for them. And that's all we can do at this time. Really, that's all you can do. Daniel O'Donnell and Claire later returned to reporter John Cook in Creasla. Returning now to Creasla in northwest Donegal, where the devastated community is preparing for the first of the funerals for 10 people killed in Friday's explosion as their remains are returned to their grieving families. As vigils take place across Donegal and beyond, locals in the community have been gathering at St Michael's Church each night to share their grief and pray for the bereaved and the injured. Well, our reporter John Cook is with us again from Creasla. And John, tell us a little bit about what's been happening happening there at St. Michael's Church. 
Yes, Claire. I mentioned to you earlier how locals in Creasla described Lafferty Shop and Service Station as the heart of their village. Now that it's gone, some explained, St Michael's Church at the other end of the street has become the focal point where young and older gathering to pray and chat. Some smiling to me, telling me it's a long time since the church was this busy. And it's not just for prayer. After a packed rosary for around 800 people held after 10 o'clock last night, the back of the church was filled with loaves of bread, cartons of milk, butter, boxes of fruit, eggs and other staple groceries. One woman explained to me that Lafferty's was the only shop in Creasla. People still need bread and milk, she said, and many in rural Donegal can't travel. As she brushed away tears from her eyes and I thought she was just moved by that act of kindness, which she was, but also later she explained to me she was upset by the death of her cousin in the explosion on Friday. As local priest Father John Joe Duffy was assisted by Father Paddy Dunn with the rosary last night. He conveyed the condolences of Pope Francis to his late-night congregation in Creasla and also a message from bereaved families he'd visited for those who had aided the weekend search and recovery efforts. I just say to all who were involved in our, in our rescue and recovery operation, you are very much in our prayers and families that I have been speaking to, bereaved families, want to let you know they are so very grateful you did uh, what you did uh, under very trying circumstances and I call on Father Paddy to lead us in prayer. As we gather to offer the Holy Rosary, we pay special thanks for Jessica Gallagher, Martina Martin, Martin McGill, Huey Kelly, Catherine O'Donnell and her son James Monaghan, Robert Garvey and his daughter Shauna Flanagan Garvey, Leona Harper and James O'Flaherty. We gather at the altar of God to pray for these souls, but also to pray for uh, those who are in Letterkenny University Hospital and also in St. James's in Dublin. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just so hard hearing that list of names being read out again in the church. That's Father Paddy Dunn leading the rosary at St. Michael's Church in Creasla. And John, you spoke to some of those who were coming to pray. Yeah, young and old taking part in this uh, community ritual, Claire. Many said coming together to talk or pray at the end of another dark day has been some comfort because for some they can't sleep or concentrate on anything else, they said. Nighttime rosary will take place again tonight at St Michael's Church and for the coming nights. Ten red candles will continue to burn on the altar, shining a light for each of those lives extinguished in Friday's blast as the church prepares for many more sad events to come tomorrow and in the coming days because last night the local clergy also gave details to the congregation of the first of the funerals to come. 24-year-old Jessica Gallagher, whose remains were brought home to her family last night, will be laid to rest in Doe Cemetery after 11 o'clock funeral mass here at St Michael's tomorrow morning. Her boyfriend remains in a critical condition in hospital. After Jessica's funeral tomorrow morning, the church will be filled once again on Tuesday afternoon for the funeral of 49-year-old Martin McGill, originally from Scotland, but he'd been 
living in Chrysler for the past 10 years. And James O'Flaherty, originally from Sydney and living in Dunfanaghy, will be buried on Wednesday after Mass in St Mary's Church in Derry Beg with many other funerals to follow. So as the night concluded and people went their separate ways quietly last night, Father Paddy Dunn offered a traditional blessing for each of them as I spoke to some of the mourners outside. An eternal risk unto to them, O Lords, and a perpetual light shine upon them. I'm from the town here and I just came down to support everybody. How are you all feeling? Shocked. Bar one, we know all of them. It's a tough time, very tough time, yeah. Just coming together tonight, does it help? Absolutely, because the shop was the heart of the village and it's gone now. So this is the place where everybody meets. I noticed at the back of the church there's bread and milk and eggs and fruit and that's what someone said to me earlier on, we don't have a shop anymore and sadly life goes on, people still need bread and milk. It's very hard to even think of those things right now but somebody has brought it here and offered it to the people. Do you feel strength from, I suppose, the support that people are are offering or the condolences people are sending? Absolutely and I know some of the members of our community um, from St Vincent de Paul also support the older people that sort of live up here beside the chapel and the shop was their breadline. That was where they got all their messages. They don't have cars. They, they would have been in the shop all the time getting their groceries. So it's great to see that all this mm-hmm. is here for them as well. Did your boys uh, know James or Leona, lads? Leona's in the year below me. James, two years below me. So I knew James well. He'd always say hello to me in the halls and all like. I was a nice young fellow now. Do you think everybody's trying to deal with their own grief? A good friend lost her brother. Music is extra special, and that can be a very much repeated story at a time like this. Mm-hmm. I think the whole area, to the whole nation, is absolutely devastated. Personally, I can't even focus on my daily chores. Does it help to come together tonight? It does very much. So it's all about unity mm-hmm. and sharing that grief together. I'd say it does help. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible tragedy. We never came across anything like it before. Martina Martin is related to us. Okay, she worked in the shop, I understand, That's in Lafferty. That's right, yeah. Uh-huh. The days ahead is going to be very awkward for the poor families. Mm-hmm. Along with John Cook in Chrysla in the morning and in the afternoon, Joe Duffy was paying tribute to the 10 people who lost their lives on Friday. Well, little did we know at um, three o'clock on Friday as we said goodbye for the weekend that by the time we would be back on air now that the village of Chrysla and Donegal and the names of 10 locals would be forever inscribed on our nation's heart. With the consent of the families, on Gardaí Corner can confirm the identities of the deceased as follows. James O'Flaherty, 48 years. Jessica Gallagher, 24 years. Martin McGill, 49 years. Catherine O'Donnell, 39 years. And her son, James Monaghan, 13 years. Hugh Kelly, 59 years. Martina Martin, 49 years. Robert Garway, 50 years, and his daughter, Shauna Flanagan Garway, five years, and Leona Harper, 14 years of age.
see you smile I'm happy to be back again and greet you big and small for there's no place else on earth just like the homes of Donegal Homes of Donegal, Paul Brady from Liveline with Joe Duffy. And in the afternoon, Gabor Maté, author of The Myth of Normal and The Ray Darcy Show. Yeah, I'm delighted to be joined next by a man whose name has been mentioned many times on the show over the years. In fact, his name has popped up nearly any time we've chatted about addiction or recovery. Uh, Dr. Gabor Maté is a world-renowned trauma expert. He's considered to be one of the leading experts globally in the study of addiction and childhood development. His new book has just been published. It's called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And Dr. Gabor Maté is in BBC Wogan House in London. And I can say good afternoon, Gabor. Hi. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having yeah. me here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Now, we have a good bit of time so we can relax into it and, and tease out all we have to tease out. Um so firstly, let's find out a little bit about you, if you don't mind, because your mm. life informs a lot of your work, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes intelligently, sometimes not so well. <laughs> right, okay. So you were born uh, into a Jewish family in Hungary. Yes. In fact, I just came back from Hungary uh, last night, uh, where the new book has just been published. And uh, it's my birth uh, city, Budapest, and I was born there in January 1944 to Jewish parents and... Uh, Two months later, the Nazis occupied Hungary and the genocide, uh, the most rapid mass murder uh, of Jews anywhere uh, happened in Hungary in the three months between March and June of 1944. And my family and myself lived through that. And my grandparents died in Auschwitz. Hmm. And what happened to you as a a child? (coughs) So as an infant, uh, I spent... My first year, mostly under Nazi occupation and also under a very vicious um, Nazi-like organization that took over the Hungarian government in October of 1944, viciously anti-Semitic, viciously pro-Nazi. My mother and I lived under very difficult conditions, as you can imagine. Her mental Mm -hmm. state after the death of her parents was devastated. The absence of my father, without her knowing whether he's alive or dead, would have affected her mental state. Not to mention the dangers of our own existence, the bombing of the city by the Allies. So, And at 11 months of age, as I've often related, she, to save my life, gave me to a stranger in the street. And I didn't see her for five or six weeks. And that was my first year of life. Just handed you over to some person she'd never met. She did. In fact, um, I stood at the very spot only a couple of days ago. Uh, that house where that happened still exists and she did that because where we were living the conditions were so bad I would not have survived and uh, I this Christian woman who took me in the street um, conveyed me to some relatives living under relatively safer conditions and I didn't Mm. see my mother all those weeks How did you feel standing at that spot? I'd been there before um, Ah. but it's always um it's more like incongruous is how I feel at that point because I'm thinking here are these same paving stones where she stood handing me to this Christian woman and here's the building mm. where I lived for two days until she sent me out of there and it still exists and and 
across the street is a sports club where I go swimming every morning when I'm in Budapest. So here's <laughs> right. the, the dichotomy yeah. between this life-enhancing activity and then the place where I almost lost my life is just too much mm. for the mind to comprehend. And how your life has changed. And how did you end up in Canada? Well, in 1956, uh, there was the revolution against communist rule and the Soviet um, occupation, which was... Um, defeated by the Soviet army after a few days of liberty and a lot of Hungarians, about 100,000 I think, maybe more, left the country and my parents and my brother were amongst those and we ended up being um, immigrants to Canada. Mm. And I suppose we'll sort of sprint on now to your college years. You chose medicine. Medicine was my lifetime choice, actually, and I never wanted to be anything other than a physician. It's only that, in retrospect, what kept me from it was my lack of discipline and difficulty concentrating, which I recognized much later on was owing to my ADHD kind of mind. I just couldn't buckle down and do it until later. So I taught high school for a few years, and then I realized that no, I, I'm a physician, I need to be a doctor, and I then I buckled down, did the work, and got to medical school and became a doctor. And Gabor spoke about the differences between trauma and upset. Let's talk about trauma then, and, and it, it's sort of, it's bandied about now as a word, isn't it? Uh, but let's let's talk about your definitions. There's You talk about uh, big T trauma and small T trauma. Mm. Well, let's first just acknowledge what you said, the, which is that it is bandied about a bit too loosely. So yes. people will say things like, uh, I had a fight with my best friend and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You just had an upset, you know, or you were stressed. So not every upset, not every stress is traumatic. Or I saw a movie and it was traumatic. No, it wasn't. It was just you experienced a lot of um, emotional pain or upset. So on the one hand, we use the word too loosely. But on the other hand, where it really matters, understanding people's emotional uh, states, their relationship problems, their um, embittered political views, or their illnesses of mind and body, we don't use them nearly enough. So the average medical student, I would wager to, to guess, in Ireland or Northern Ireland or England or Canada or United States, never hears a single lecture on the connection between trauma and physical illness. And yet, mm. there's a vast body of literature, scientific literature, pointing out both the correlation and the pathways physiologically by which trauma inflicts its uh, damaging impacts on the body. So on the one hand, we do talk about it a bit loosely. On the other hand, we don't talk about it nearly enough where it really matters. <laughs> Nor do we talk about it in our prisons, where if you mm. do, do the research, Many of the people in the criminal justice system are traumatized individuals. That's why they did what they did. But when it comes to rehabilitation, we don't deal with their traumas. We just punish them. So we don't talk about them nearly enough. Now, you know, sorry for the rant, but you asked No, no, about no, the, I, that, that's important. That's hugely important. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So you talk yeah, about because, the small people and the think, big Some people think they understand trauma, but they don't. Yeah. And that's why we're having you no, on. No, and no, we, most, no, most people don't understand it. And the word simply yeah. means a wound. I mean, it comes from a Greek word for wounding. So trauma is a psychological wound that we harbor, that we might not be aware of, but which is impacts on our behavior, on our emotions, and on our physical and mental health, on our relationships and everything else under the sun. You mentioned big T, small T. All I mean by that is is that some events are clearly traumatic, such as death of a parent or family member, 
such as violence in a family, such as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, a war, you know, these are traumatic events. But they're not the trauma. The trauma is not the events. The trauma is the wound that you sustain as a result, from which it follows that although people are often wounded by these big T events, and don't we just know how often that has happened um, in Irish history, for one thing, but but also the small T ones, which is not about the terrible things that happened, but about the good things that didn't happen. And what I mean by that is children are born with certain emotional needs. In the modern world, what I call this toxic culture, children's emotional needs are often not met, not even understood, and that's wounding to the child's soul. And so people can be traumatized by these big T events, but also in loving families with dedicated parents, just by the child's needs not being met because of the stresses or traumas of the parents themselves. And you cite your own experience with your children in that context. Absolutely. I I, I, I wrote this book with one of my children, um, who's now 47. And when his child was three years old, I whacked him across the face with the back of my hand because he didn't sing happy birthday to me. I mean, I traumatized my kids. I didn't mean to. I passed on my own personal traumas to my children, as we all do, until we work them out. But not because we don't love our kids, not because, I mean, I would have thrown myself into a fire for my children any time, but, you know, the problem really was that nobody ever needed me to throw myself into a fire. They just needed me to be home as an emotionally aware and attuned and, and connected father, which I didn't do because I was a, as a workaholic physician, so uh, who had his own emotional problems. So, um, yeah, mm. it's, it happened in our family. It happens in a lot of families. Gabor Maté, author of The Myth of Normal from The Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning, the calming beauty of Blue Planet and Planet Earth. David Attenborough might be the driving force and face of the series, but it takes a huge amount of time and patience from the likes of cameraman Doug Allen to bring these natural phenomena to our screens. Doug was Ryan Tuberty's guest in the morning. Tell us a little bit about your your your, your beginning, because you weren't always destined to be underwater with a camera, were you? No, no not really. Uh, although, no, not with a camera. Uh, I did get into diving. I got into diving when I was at school, and that led me to marine biology. But I always wanted to to be, uh, you know, where the where the underwater basically. So I started working with scientific expeditions, and got this wonderful job in the Antarctic, working as a research diver down there, helping the scientists to gather the data. And it was at the end of one of my contracts in the Antarctic mm. that David Attenborough and a film crew came to our station for a couple of days and it fell to me to, to help them. And it was that experience with David that opened my eyes to the possibilities of combining diving with photography and all the excitement and, and, and great worthwhile stuff that David and the crew seemed to be doing. So I moved direction from shooting stills to shooting movie. And it was great. That was in the mid-80s, let's say. And it's been a great time ever since. Oh, I can imagine. It's funny, David Attenborough, as the years roll by, <laughs> yeah, has that's a, right. he's attained to celestial status, hasn't he? 
Well, yes. I mean, there's there's no one comes close to David in terms of the the, the profile that he that he rightfully carries. I mean, David has been making films since the 1950s or involved with broadcasts since the 1950s, and he has seen the changes in the world, and he has been responsible for bringing some of the most memorable series and sequences within those series, you know, to the eyes of everyone. So he's had a massive influence in in making people aware of the environment. In the years that that you're filming wildlife, how, how many days of patience and tenacity are required to bring about a minute of, of that to the screen? Well, we have a rule of thumb. Obviously, you know, when you when you have a film, you have a certain amount of budget. Um, and the rule of thumb that the production manager and the producers work to is that if you put someone like me into the field for eight for eight days, we'll come back with a minute on the screen. <laughs> So if so simply to get one episode of something like Frozen Planet, mm. you could be looking at 400 filming days. So there are massive logistics exercises to get the people into the best place, to give them the chances to, <clears throat> to grab the sequences. But of course, you're not always successful. So all the while that the production is going on, it's kind of like trying to nail jelly to a wall. Mm. You're getting some things, you're losing others. Some are better than you expected, some not. And so it's, it's always a moving target. And and it's it's wildlife. It's the animal kingdom. It's it's weather. You are absolute. And here you are as human beings with all the arrogance that we carry, uh, rolling in saying, "Okay, cameras on now. Cue cue the whale." You know, <laughs> it's not going to happen necessarily that way. No, that might ha- that happens in dramas. You know, yeah. where you can script everything. But yes, when you're dealing with with the natural world, there are really only two rules, you know, that we follow that keep us sane. The first thing to remember is that you can only be in one place at one time. Mm. So you're up there in a cabin trying to film polar bears. You leave in the morning, you look all day, you can't find polar bears. You come back at night and there's footprints all around your cabin. But, you know, you just try to accept that. Some days we won't go to the right place. But the other thing to remember is if you're not there, if you're not out looking, then you'll certainly never see it. So you need to take a chance. You need to show tenacity. And and sometimes it becomes remarkably simple. We as camera people just have to get out there in the field and be ready to capture what we get. But also bear in mind that we may we may well not get as much as we hope to. Talk to me about whales, Doug, and your admiration for them as one of the great creatures uh, in in the world. Uh, whales are magnificent. Whales are mammals, like you and I. And um, the thing to remember about whales is that they are mammals. They have personalities. They have individual personalities. Every whale, every whale species is slightly different, but within that species, you will have individuals who are different. And if you can find a friendly whale, someone who accepts you, someone who trusts you, someone who will get on, a whale who will get on with natural behaviour while you are there in front of it. And don't forget as well that working underwater, we have to be much closer to our subjects than we do on land. On land, we can use long telephoto lenses, we can hide in blinds. You can't do any of that underwater. Mm. When you can see the animal, the animal can see you. So there's this wonderful chemistry that can develop between you and, and the whales. And of course, whales, if you come up to things like killer whales, they they have such sophisticated, beautiful, elegant behaviour that we're only just beginning to see the range of behaviours that they make. And of course, it's wonderful when you get the chance to film 
a piece of that behaviour for the first time. I mean, that's every camera person's holy grail. Mm. And quite often underwater with the new techniques, the new tools that we've got, drones, for example, that let us look down on what's happening down below, then that's why you're seeing a lot of new stuff for the first time. And Ryan asked Doug about some of the sequences he's filmed over the years. I was watching the whales... Um, manoeuvring uh, towards uh, a seal on a on an ice floe recently, and, and you may have filmed this actually because it, it it. But I've never seen anything like it. It was like synchronized swimming on a murder hunt. <laughs> exactly. No, we filmed that. We covered that first for, for um, Frozen Planet yes. One, and then they did it again for Frozen Planet Two, but with the addition of drones, which allows you to see more clearly what the whales were doing underwater. And yeah. When you think, Ryan, about the, the degree of, of intelligence and communication that these animals have to show, to first of all go into the ice to find certain seals, to identify a flow that's not too big so that they can wash the whale, the seal off, etc. And then four or five of them coordinating their actions to produce a wave big enough. And then they also showed this lovely behaviour where sometimes the, the ice flow that the seal is on there'll be lots of ice round about it. And that lots of ice round about makes it harder to generate the wave. So the whales actually put their nose against the ice flow and push the ice flow into more open water where the, whale, where the wave can be more effective. Now, the amount of decision-making that these whales are making is just remarkable. Yeah, it, tr- it truly is. And, you know, when you watch... If you ever watch Gogglebox watching these programs, they, they, they always begin with this, oh, the cute whale, and then you realise it's, 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 it's a brutal banquet, <laughs> and off they oh, go. Well, well, you know, I mean, animals, some animals are, are evolved to, you know, to hunt other animals. That's how they live. And when we're filming it, yeah, it is, it is hard to watch sometimes, uh, you know, a killer whales separating a young grey whale from its mother and then drowning the young whale. I mean, I can, you know, it's full of emotion and things, but our job is to be there and to observe something that may be being seen for the first time. And to, we need to separate our emotions to some extent to make sure that our teary eyes, through our teary eyes, we're at least keeping the thing in focus. You know? Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you talk, you talk, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that you can become friendly with a whale or recognisable oh, yeah. to a whale. This happened to you in yeah. Tonga and, and with the humpback yeah. whales. Talk, talk to me about about that and, and how that how that works in practice. Well, the thing with humpback whales is humpback whales are among... Uh, they spend a lot of time at the surface of humpback whales doing interesting things. But when they dive and throw their tail up, if you get a look at the underside of a humpback whale's tail, then you'll see a pattern of black and white splotches on it. And that pattern is unique to that whale. So if you, so it means that in somewhere like Tonga, you can actually go out looking for specific whales. And we'd met this one whale on, on, a, on a day, and the whale was beginning to get quite friendly. So we were able to go out to this bay, and it wasn't always that we found it, but we did find it quite often enough. Often enough that I'm sure the whale recognised our boat and wanted to spend time with us. Doug Allen from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, 
supporting cancer survivors when treatment is finished but the mental and emotional scars remain. Catherine O'Brien is the first advanced nurse practitioner cancer survivorship in Ireland to be appointed solely to a clinic focused on cancer survivorship and she leads a clinic at the Trinity St. James's Cancer Institute for patients who have finished their treatment and the clinic focuses on breast cancer, testicular cancer and lymphoma and Catherine is with me in the studio now. You're very welcome Catherine, it's good to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your role in this clinic. What what do you do? Yeah. So thanks, Claire, for having me here today. Um, so when patients finish their treatment, as you said, they could be cancer free or their cancer would be under control. Um, and life then should kind of take off after that and they should get back to normal or move to a new normal and that doesn't always happen and you're right the supports tend to be kind of they feel they're kind of pulled from under them um, because both from the the hospital the nurses the doctors they're not coming in for their visits all the time anymore and also their their families and friends tend to back away from them then you know and kind of think look your cancer is gone now you should be getting on with things and that doesn't always happen Mm -hmm. so once patients transfer to my clinic I suppose the first thing that happens is for the rest of their surveillance uh, programme because they keep coming back for a few years at different intervals they know that it's me they're going to see each time they come back I become their clinical lead and their contact person so at each visit you know I'll identify if their cancer has come back you know make sure that they know what signs to, to be looking out for for each of the individual cancers and also I deal with any kind of uh, effects lingering effects after their treatment that might still be there because mm-hmm. there's physical effects like you know um, ongoing fatigue, insomnia, they might have pain, you know, after surgery or maybe incontinence, fertility uh, issues. And also there's the psychosocial things. So, you know, people may have lost their self-confidence, you know, they could be socially isolated, they have this fear of, of recurrence. So I address those kind of things and they crop up at different stages in the survivorship trajectory. Mm-hmm. So they're not and all you can, at the can you start. map that out now, given the experience that you have? Yeah, I can do. I mean, you know, at the very start, they're usually concerned about their cancer coming back more. And, you know, they may not remember, you know, what stage is my cancer at or, you know, that sort of thing. What should I be looking out for? Um, and at different stages then, it might be a few years later that it might be a young person that suddenly thinks, oh, I don't know whether that cancer has affected my fertility or how do I, you know, find out whether I can have children or how do I go about managing that um, or it might be menopausal symptoms you know early menopause might might occur at, at different stages after the treatment the fear recurrence is a huge thing you know about we know that up to 90% of patients will have fear recurrence after a, a cancer diagnosis particularly after the treatment finishes and that should get better as the time goes on but not always mm-hmm. um, What is so, that like? I mean what do your, your patients your clients tell you about that? Like, does it change how they live, that Um, fear? Sometimes, yes, it does. You know, some of them, thank God it's a very small number, but, you know, on a daily basis or a weekly uh, basis, they might worry about it coming back. So they're, they might be afraid to go back to work um, because if they do, well, what happens if it comes back and then I have to talk to my employer again or I, I feel like I'm leaving people down and uh, things like that. Their children, sometimes they worry, you know, is this going to, how is it going to impact on my family or my children if it, if it comes back or is my cancer going to 
to affect my children doesn't mean that they're going to be at risk of, of developing it, uh, uh, the same cancer, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So it does, it, it, it can be quite debilitating. For most people, they do move on from it. So it might just be at different stages. They might see something on the television. Um, you know, there isn't a, a movie or, you know, a drama that doesn't have somebody affected by cancer. And that can be a trigger. So that might, you know, spark it off. Or it might be that they go for a mortgage and all of a sudden, you know, because they have to write down that they had cancer, it's suddenly kind of, you know, they might have put it behind them, but it suddenly sparks with them. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? I did have cancer. Maybe it'll come back and it could set them into a spin. This is a, a relatively new service in Ireland, isn't it? I know your own one is up, up and running just a couple of years. How did you get involved in, in all of this? Yeah, so I suppose I was always very interested in cancer survivorship. I've worked for over 25 years in cancer. Um, I've always worked during, you know, just after the diagnosis or during the treatment phase. But I've always had a really big interest in people afterwards and the fact that, you know, they don't really have very much supports there. Um, so with the, the cancer strategy really that was um, launched in 2018 was really the first time that cancer survivorship was given a specific focus, which was great. And I was just ready for it. Catherine O'Brien from Today with Claire Byrne. And I'll leave you now with the beautiful sound of Guido's Maureen Waney playing for all of us, for the people of Donegal in particular, the people of Crisla. Maureen, you have a piece to, to play, play us out on. on yes, this. this is a piece I wrote through uh, COVID and I wrote it for my sister. It's called Ray and Polish, which means the time of light. So you play that and then we'll uh, do, uh, obviously, the most important thing is to remember the names of uh, the 10 people who who died uh, on Friday afternoon. Consent of the families on Garda Corner can confirm the identities of the deceased as follows James O'Flaherty, 48 years, Jessica Gallagher, 24 years, Martin McGill, 49 years, Catherine O'Donnell, 39 years, and her son James Monaghan, 13 years, Hugh Kelly, 59 years, Martina Martin, 49 years. Robert Garway, 50 years, and his daughter, Shauna Flanagan Garway, 5 years, and Leona Harper, 14 years of age. Ayeshde Gorevanomica Dilish Gulair.
beautiful Mairead Nimwini ending playback daily. Mind yourself till next time. <laughs>